Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Eric Kaplan, and I'm a philosopher and a writer in Hollywood. And uh, we have Tao Ruspoli with us today. Tao, why don't you introduce yourself to the folks at home? My name is Tao Ruspoli. I'm a uh, filmmaker. I'm the co-founder of the Bombay Beach Biennale. I'm a good friend of Eric Kaplan's, and I also have a degree in philosophy. And I'm also a podcaster, so here I am. And the name of your podcast is what, Tao? The name of my podcast is Being in the World, which is also named after a film I made with our mutual mentor and professor, Hubert Dreyfus. I'm sure we'll get deeper into that. Um, we might. So, so those of you who are experts on the philosophy of personal identity will have noticed that Tao and Taylor are different people. And good on you, that's, that's for, to a first approximation, absolutely true. Um, Taylor is taking a sabbatical from podcasting for the next uh, indeterminate amount of time because he has a book on Heidegger and metaphysics that he needs to finish up. Um, so we wish him Godspeed writing that book, and, and he's in our thoughts and prayers. Um, and Tao is going to be the co-host of this podcast, and this podcast is called Terrifying Questions and How Not to Be Terrified by Them. Uh, and you'll be listening to Tao and me and our guests for the next uh, couple of months, perhaps. Um, and uh, what's our terrifying question today, Tao? We debated it a lot. And I we think did we debate it. it on, on is entertainment a deceiving or deceptive lie? I wanted to say it's a seductive lie. Oh, seductive. Do you want to not talk about seduction? Because oh, it's, want... it's too sexy? I like seduction better. I just okay. remember Is it. entertainment yeah. a seductive lie? Right. Although interesting. As we were discussing, I, I said, maybe we should ask, is art a seductive lie? And you said that gets into snooty questions like what is art? But of yeah. course, it gets into snooty questions too, like what is seduction and what is a lie? I think those are equally yeah. difficult. I guess, I guess I find some, there's certain philosophical questions which get boring really fast. And to me, the question of like, like the difference between art and entertainment I find people tend to take a kind of a a pious approach, which I find less interesting. So, so at least I want to say, you know, Marvel movies, um, The Big Bang Theory, um, Pixar, I things that we all know what they are. They're entertainment, and then, and I'd rather ask the question: Are those things a seductive lie than the question: Are they art? Although, you know. It's only words, man. It doesn't matter. No, I mean, the words do matter. Uh, they do matter. And and I think uh, this seems to be a central concern of yours um, in everything I've heard you discuss. You seem to have this set up this dichotomy, even in your own personal life, between the piety of philosophy and the almost kind of more accessible and practical realm of entertainment do you want to talk and i'd like to overcome that i'd like to overcome that because i think it may have to do more with my uh my early childhood self-judgmentalism than with anything terribly deep can you but can you go back i don't know if i haven't heard you discuss your own personal journey that much on the podcast and can i pry a little bit and, yeah pry away and 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 maybe you could tell me and our listeners about this struggle that was very real for you when you had to decide between pursuing a career in 
traditional academic philosophy. And I, I had a similar journey in terms of we both went from loving academia and there's a certain purity associated with academia and then going into making things that are more entertaining. I mean, this more entertaining philosophy papers are, are amazing, but they're not that entertaining a lot of the time. Right. In fact, frequently not. Opposite frequently of entertaining. Not. Yeah. So, um, so, so tell about, tell us about your, your path and how this. So what I would say is as follows. Um, my mother, Charlotte Buxbaum Kaplan, uh, was a child of Eastern European Jewish immigrants and became a high school teacher at the age of 20. And she always wanted me to be a scientist and a doctor and gave me a very strong sense that there are, um, there's a right and a wrong answer to how to live your life and what is worth thinking about. And, and her example of what was worth thinking about the paradigm was science and particularly medical science, because it was both um, true, like Darwin is true. And also it was uh, helpful to people. Um, so this, this was really uh, something that I absorbed, um, not with my mother's milk, because I don't believe I was breastfed, but sort of metaphorically with the air that I breathed. Um, and so I would always have a conversation with myself. Oh, that's an interesting thing to do, but is it worthwhile? Is it real? Um, and when I was a, a young teen, I became friends with some Platonist philosophers who had a, a museum of philosophy. And they had the same notion but it was really about philosophy and they and they I'll read a little bit from Plato later but Plato had the idea that there's a really strong divide between the truth and you know his teacher was willing to die for the truth and people who are just sort of enjoying themselves um and and this really uh again I took it very seriously so much so that I really didn't want to major in philosophy because I felt that that it was insufficiently serious to be a professor of philosophy I wanted I wanted to be like Socrates like I wanted to really live my life uh just to uh, to learn the truth and not even to compromise to the point of like getting a job as a professor um and this, this made me a little bit unhappy as a grad student in philosophy, because I always felt like, well, are these things true? And, and if they're not true, I didn't want to say they were true. And I was very uh, nervous about, well, what if they catch me that I don't believe many of the things they think are true, and I don't get a job. So at some point, I did want to get a job because I'd gotten married, and I wanted to have a family. And and I went into what my mother didn't like, which was Hollywood uh, writing. And it was pretty clear from that, that um, if you couldn't do something that was enjoyable enough that millions of people would voluntarily watch it, you'd be shown the door because it's it's a business. Um, it's, it's a show business, as they call it. Um, so I felt kind of split um, for a long time that I felt if I was doing something worthwhile, it would be philosophy, but possibly not even academic philosophy. It would be like, I don't know what, like just in a cave somewhere reaching the truth. Um, but that wasn't the life I was living. Um, but 
lately i think that this there's some mistakes here uh i i made some mistakes philosophically and perhaps there's a way of unifying these two things and maybe taking some of the um the self-critical inner voice that i have and and healing it rather than or integrating it rather than just accepting uh that what it has to say is true before you how's do that how's that for an answer it sounds like good the beginning of one but i think there's there's we could make the problem even worse first by saying that there's there are people out there who would say that both philosophy and entertainment are equally frivolous for very different reasons but both uh stand in stark contrast with practical things let's say like medicine or right. law or something like that like someone might say philo philosophers are entertaining themselves in one way and entertainers are entertaining themselves and other people in another way but everyone's in the uh, uh, th there seems to be a distinction we could make between uh, practical endeavors and not so practical endeavors of which philosophy and entertainment might both fall into the same category instead of opposite categories. Sure. But let me, let me just, um, let, I don't know if I want to get into this right now, but let's just tag the possibility that if the difference is practically helping people versus not practically helping people um entertainment might do better than philosophy because you know lincoln said to uh, harriet beecher stowe about uncle tom's cabin uh, you're the little woman whose book started this great war um so so you can say if we have democratic politics where people will vote as to whether they care about um giving equal rights to gay people or whether they want to do something about the environment, uh, you need to change people's minds and hearts to get them to vote the right way. And that's the job of the entertainment industry. So you could argue that, that and Shelley said poets, uh, I, I don't know if he would consider uh, the Big Bang Theory to be poetry, but he said poets are the unacknowledged legislators of mankind. So you could say that one of the jobs that we can all do is to open up people's hearts to compassion and justice and, you know, a long view of the environment and safeguarding the environment and art and popular art is a critical tool for doing that. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, another way that we should attack this, I think, is again, without asking what is art, because that is a snooty question, as you put it. We well, do, we do, you can ask it. We do have to ask to... what is truth, though, because I, I think that when you get into philosophy, in some sense, you're looking for the truth or the nature of truth, at least, or maybe, you know, do, what is our, what, if any, access do we have to the truth? And then in entertainment and in, in, in writing fiction, in some sense, you're saying, okay, I'm not going to worry about the truth. But in another sense, you are going after some type of truth right i mean i think when you when you say something when you write something funny it must be funny in part because it's very true right and it's true in a way that surprises people and makes them yes. laugh for that reason right yes so i think we should like ask a little bit at the at the you know we might at we might tread into pretentious or snooty territory but i think it's worth okay. asking okay. in this in for this question 
what is the nature of truth and what is the nature of you know philosophy's approach to truth versus entertainment approach to truth right you must um, be going after the truth in both those realms in some right. way right so to focus our minds what would help would be an example of something that at least on the face of it is entertaining but untrue i mean some of the things you write obviously if if, if we take a, a an animated 30 minute show there what's true about that okay so well um so let let's painting. let's On give, surface, an, let's let's give an example fun, right let's give an example of something so if someone someone let's take the aesop's fable mm -hmm. uh the Aesop's fable of um, the wolf and the lamb. Are you familiar with the fable of the wolf and the lamb? I am, but refresh my memory. Okay. So a wolf comes upon a lamb and says, um, I'm going to kill you because you did something terrible to me last Christmas. And the lamb says, but sir, I wasn't born last Christmas. That can't be right. And then the wolf says... Well, it must have been your father who did it. And the lamb is like, but but my father was dead last Christmas. It couldn't be my father. And then the wolf says, well, I don't have the time to get to the bottom of this, but you're clearly a bad person and eats him. Um, and the moral is um, powerful people will say whatever it takes to achieve their wicked goals. So... If someone were to say, well, Aesop, this is a lie because wolves and lambs cannot talk, then then they would be making a certain kind of mistake, right? Yeah. What kind of mistake? What, why is that a mistake? Well, that's a very literal literate, you know, uh, definition of the truth, right? Well, it's, yeah, it's somehow missing the point, which yeah. is Aesop is not writing a fable to instruct us about the linguistic capabilities of four-footed animals. He knows as well as we do that goats, not goats, but but uh, wolves and lambs don't talk. He's trying to use uh, a story to convey something which is true. And and I picked an example which is, is sort of easy because they say what it is. It's the moral. The moral is that powerful people will tell lies to do what they want. Um, and that's true. Um, we've all experienced that. So the Aesop's fable is is a very what we call it didactic, right? It's a very didactic form of of art or entertainment. So there's didacticism, and didacticism sounds like something um even a very stern moralist like Confucius or Plato would be fine with Aesop's fables. Like that's, that's clearly fine. Um, but I'm wondering if we can come up with an example of something. So, so we've, let's just take, uh, take a look at what we've learned so far. We've learned that um, sometimes artworks or works of entertainment can be uh, true but even if they're not literally true. So we're okay with that, and that sounds correct. But now we want to ask the question, um, can they ever be 
uh, false, um, misleading, flattering, uh, seductive in a bad way. Um, and, and I'm trying to come up with an example of that. Can you help me? First, I'm going to try and keep taking it back to un okay. uncomfortable territory, but maybe re revelatory territory mm. of your own journey. Because okay. when you decided to leave academic philosophy to pursue entertainment, did you think, well, I can still be doing philosophy and be saying something true? Or did you think I'm going to abandon my pursuit of truth in order to entertain? I said different things based upon what day of the week you asked me. Mm -hmm. And that I think was um, a sign that I wasn't fully integrated. But in, in my view, I think I thought, well, So the first the first show I started working on sort of seriously after I was done with David Letterman was Futurama. And I thought that what it did was keep imaginative possibilities open. So I felt that one of the nice things about creative art like like science fiction and comedy is is that um they teach us something true. And the true thing is not that um, robots smoke cigars because they don't, but the true thing was a sort of awareness that there are more options than in life than initially uh, it seems there are. So, for example, I wrote, I'll, I'll tell you about a couple of episodes of Futurama that I wrote that I liked. Um, one of them is called Hell is Other Robots. And the premise was that the robots have a religion and the way the religion works is they've actually built hell and they've actually built heaven. And if you break the rules, you get sent to a literal robot hell. So that was a way of, for me to explore the question of sort of what would it mean for there to be religious truth that was literally true and, and sort of implicitly to raise the question, if that's not what our lives are like, if it's not that we get sent away to a literal robot hell, then is there a way in which religion might be true um, that's different? Um, so it was more for my money, what I was doing in Futurama with my co-authors uh, was um, imaginatively exploring certain questions rather than answering the questions. Mm -hmm. kind of what we're trying to do here hopefully yeah yeah uh and that's and that's interesting it's a little hard to put that in um it, <laughs> I, i'm trying to formulate this but but what i'm what i'm what i'm trying to say is um the person who doesn't know that there are other options when they say something, it doesn't have the same weight as the person who does know that there are other options. So in a sense, it's not as true, even though it might seem that it corresponds to reality. Then in a sense, like, um, like if, like, let's say somebody who, um, they dance ballet and they say the following sentence, uh, Swan Lake is a beautiful dance. 
And if you compare that to, and, and that's the only kind of dance they know. And then you compare that to someone who says exactly the same sentence, but they know hip hop dancing and African dancing. And they say, Swan Lake is a beautiful dance. I almost feel like the, the second sentence in the mouth of the second person has more, has more heft to it. It's more meaningful and therefore truer because they know more. Yeah. They know more deeply what it means because they've had an experience of more options that their, their approach to it is a little more alive. What do you think of that? Yeah. I, 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 I'm thinking in, in terms of like how art or, you know, again, I'm trying to see if we can avoid the word art. Use but, the word art. I take it back. I take it back. Um, Use the word art as much as you want. That it may be, it's even a foundation of truth, right? I think the Heidegger said art is truth. It's setting it, putting it, setting itself to work. Mm -hmm. uh, and that when something might seem like on the surface as entertainment, uh, whether it was a, you know, a play thousands of years ago or hip hop dance now, but really it's, it's setting up and showing us some deep, uh, essence of what it is to be human at that particular time, right? And therefore, it might even be a, a domain in which the difference between truth and untruth like, starts to manifest, if that doesn't sound too. Right. So it's a domain in which the difference between truth and untruth starts to manifest. Um, is that too highfalutin, maybe? It's uh, not too highfalutin. I'm just wondering if it's true. Um, because, like... I don't know if for come come with me to a thought experiment and I, and and if it turns out the thought experiment is messed up we'll address that but my thought experiment is there's a bunch of people that look like people in old Dubai gorge and they have no art but they do have language and one of them says um don't go into that mountain. It's full of lions. And that could either be true or not true. Like it could be that it's in fact full of delicious fruit trees and he's just trying to get all the fruit for himself. Mm -hmm. Or it could be that the, it is in fact full of lions, as he said. And they have done no art. Let's just assume they don't do cave painting. They don't do dance. They don't do singing. They just hang out out and try to eat and have you know intimate relations with one another and avoid being eaten by lions uh, and you know stay out of the rain um does that make sense yeah no Could i that do, be true there is Could that happen Werner herzog had this distinction between the accountant's truth which he said is what you find in the phone book uh, this is this person's name and this is their phone number that's true mm. that's, and that's a so that's the, that's like the to. the the valley is full of lions yeah. so Werner Herzog would call that the accountant's truth yeah and he says that's that's fine it doesn't it it's not not true but how interesting is it compared to it's pretty interesting ecstatic if, you, if you're in a valley that's full of lions and someone tells you that it's rather interesting isn't it yeah but I wonder then if the if how you approach the lions then 
you know, maybe if you were raised in a culture that had works of arts that showed what it's like to have courage and valor and, and what it's like to be a great, you know, hunter, for example, they're going to respond to the existence of the lions in one way. Uh, whereas someone else who says, actually, we've been raised in a culture and we've seen works of art where the lion is something to be, you know, preserved in its natural habitat. And there, th that would give me a totally different response to the to the fact that there's lions there. Okay, that, there's different examples of so, like what the what what's the salient like response? What's the appropriate response to that truth is shown to us by things that an expansive uh, definition of art, let's say, an entertainment. Right. So that's true. So somebody, let's say, sticks sticks their um stick in a fire and they draw on the wall of their cave a shape that looks like a human but it's got the head of a lion and they and they say hey tao and eric we're going to initiate you into our hunter mysteries and they and we go into the cave and they light a torch and we're like oh man that's so cool. Um, and maybe that is a sort of um, letting truth and falsehood come into existence that you're talking about or you're channeling Heidegger. Um, that that um, has, that's opened up us to the possibility that a human being could have some of the virtues of a lion, right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, I'd like to flip on its head the question of what it seems to be at the, on the surface when you say, is entertainment a seductive lie? There's a negative valence to both lie and seductive. Whereas maybe when, maybe if we allow ourselves to be seduced by a piece of uh, amazing entertainment and we let us ourselves be taken up in this quote unquote lie, we will have great benefit both as the creators at, or the receivers of this work of entertainment. That's what I, I would like to think so that we have well, in our whole lives, that when we create something that's not the accountant's truth, that we are, we are at least revealing another kind of truth through these, through the seduction and through the lie. And I'd love to unpack a little bit more what seduction means. Sure. To I would too, because there is a sort of fork in the road here. And one is one one path is the is the Heideggerian path, which is going to say, you know what, that painting of the lion is true. That uh, the lion man, rather, the lion man painting is true. And the other one is to say the lion man painting is false, but it has other good things about it. It could be enjoyable. It could uh, help us all cooperate. Um, so it could have social benefits. It could have personal benefits. And, um, you know, the neoclassicists said um, artists are like bees because bees create two things. They create honey, which tastes good, and they create wax, which you can use for candles and you can uh, look around. Um, so they said that art promotes both sweetness and light. Um, so I feel there's a sort of a, um, a fork in the road as to whether we want to say there's, there's cognitive and non-cognitive benefits to entertainment. 
or not. And we want to say, no, the entertainment is helping in our truth making practices. It's, 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 it's on the same, it, it's similar or the same as, um, truth, truth making. Um, and I don't know, I, I don't know which I like more. I, I kind of, I mean, the, the Heidegger one is clearly uh, more, um, I mean, it's more flattering to the entertainment industry, right? Yeah. I mean, there's, 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 there's the most, um, cynical way to see the choices that you and I have made as lovers of philosophy to go into making entertainment and podcasting and TV and, you know, whatever other time types of entertainment we're making the, 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 the most cynical setup, which you gave in, in a talk that I loved that you, the, uh, was, oh, well, uh, there's, there's no money nobody's going to read or what I do. And if I do philosophy, so I'm going to sell out quote unquote, and just go make something frivolous. That's going to make people laugh and people and make me money. That's a really shallow and cynical way to see it. On the other hand is like, actually what I'm making is a profound truth. That's more profound than what you'll find in a philosophy paper. That's the most self-aggrandizing and sure. optimistic view. And then there's probably a million shades in between where the actual truth is, which is that there's a little bit of all of it maybe, or is there something I'm missing? Uh, that's the, that's a, that's a third option. So one of the things that I've been interested in is the, is the Jainist idea that's a that's a heretical Indian form of religion uh, created by Mahavira, a contemporary of the Buddha, that um, you can't say something that's not true. It's literally impossible that as soon as you say anything, it it creates a resonance amongst what you said and the uh, listener and the uh, the environment which which we call true um and and if if no one understood it like and there's a philosopher who I studied with uh named Donald Davidson who argues something like this which is everybody's beliefs are mostly true because if they weren't mostly true, you couldn't even understand that they were beliefs. Uh, in other words, a bunch of noises come out, this is Davidson, this is not Mahavira, but a bunch of noises come out of somebody's mouth flaps. And the process of saying that those noises mean something involves viewing them as true. So, so this can be a very democratic approach to the entertainment industry, although I don't think Davidson had much to say about that because he thought all metaphors were false but if we if we take sort of the spirit of his program rather than the letter of it we could say if a movie gets everybody um interested then they're uh it's because they're perceiving some truth in it and the fact that another movie might be the opposite 
doesn't mean that both movies are not true. What do you think of that, Tom? I want I want clarity, more clarity on what Davidson was saying, because first he said he was saying that anything you say has some truth in it. But then you said that metaphors are all false. Uh, that seems to right. Right. Um, he does think that metaphors are all false because he thinks to understand what someone's saying, you need to get on the same page about literal truth. So you need to, for example, if I say the word salt, um, you need to understand that I say it around salt. Um, and that's how you know that by salt, I mean that white stuff that you put on French fries. Um, he doesn't think that's true with um, uh, the moon is a tear on the face of the night. Because he's like, the moon is not a tear on the face of the night. It is, in fact, a huge ball of rock that is circling the earth. It's not a tear on the face of the of the night. That's false. Um, this is so that's I, Davidson. I that's Davidson. But I'm wondering if I say the moon is a tear on the face of the night, and you say, "You're right, man. It is a tear on the face of the night." Then the only way that you can understand what I'm saying is for it to be true. Um, now you might say, and, and here's where we start to like very often in philosophy, when you're in trouble, uh, and you don't know what you're doing, you start making distinctions. Um, and the distinction here seems to be, Oh, well, maybe it's poetically true, but I, I don't like poetically true. Cause I don't know what it means. I know exactly what it, not exactly what it means, but I know enough about what it means to think that it's useful. What does it mean? I think if I think that the, 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 the moon is a tear on the face of the night can be poetically true, um, by alluding to some mood that I'm in, let's say. I've just had my heart broken. I'm wandering the streets of Bombay Beach by myself. I look up and I see this teardrop in the face of the sky. And for me, I don't see why we should privilege the rock going around the earth because that's another type of truth that might be useful to scientists to understand the moon in a certain way. But I don't see why that's more true than my understanding of the moon as a tear in the sky. Uh, that is actually much more relevant to my existence in that moment. Uh, you could say that that's maybe a, a truth that's more specific to that place and time and person. But if I'm seeing a tear in the sky because I'm sad and it's therefore giving a kind of, it's making the whole world appear sad to me. And even the, the, the moon is crying up there. Um, I think that poetic truth and the way it's like show the world is showing itself to me uh, doesn't give me so much. It, 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 it's, it seems a lot less problematic than uh, than Davidson's idea that all metaphors are false, which seems clearly false. OK, so um, it seems that I so could, let's come up with a hard counterexample. Um, so. Um, I'm trying to think of a good heinous example from the world of advertising um, because I don't want to talk about Nazis. So a heinous example, you know, a friend of mine, Matt Weiner, created this show Mad Men, and 
it's it's his way of talking about the entertainment industry by coming up with a good counterexample to being too um uh lofty about it and he says well what about people who are their art is 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 used to um sell um you know shoes or or ladies pantyhose um and it's interesting i would argue that um he comes around to a position kind of like what you're saying because in the in the finale of mad men Don Draper has a, an enlightenment experience and this enlightenment experience causes him to create an ad for Coke, but this ad for Coke helps to fight racism. Um, it's, I'd like to give the world a Coke. Um, so, so he's, he's interested in the notion that even the most debased form of art can still have truth. So I think he's on team Tao, but my father but, wasn't, was an opium smoker for like many years and lived in the far East and it was legal at a certain time in Thailand to buy opium. And he he bought this brick of it and it had this beautiful kind of inscription on the side and he didn't understand what it meant. So he just thought it was so beautiful that he had it printed on a poster and framed on his wall. And then someone who uh, was Thai came to visit him in Rome and started laughing because it was just an ad for shoes that they'd put on the side of the opium. Oh, and interesting. It was this beautiful thing because he precisely because he didn't understand it so maybe right maybe but could it be a, I'm, I, i've been racking my brains for a good example of um of um of ad speak um but but let's say um because i can't think of a better one uh you deserve a break today at mcdonald's um and and you might want to say that um, this is false <laughs> because uh, like your example, like you're heartbroken on, at Bombay Beach, who would want to deny that there's some truth to that. But in my example, they're saying, if you deserve a break today, what you should do is eat at McDonald's. And that seems to be a sort of... Um, manipulative seductive unhelpful message and and i would hesitate to say it's true but maybe that's wrong maybe it is true i think you deserve a break today at mcdonald's i think have you had a hard day tao we can learn about but if you've had a hard day maybe you deserve a break today at mcdonald's i think we. Or, by the way that. at mcdonald's we do it all for you and oh that's a better case because they don't do it all for me they do it for their shareholders they don't do it all for me that's not true so let's go back and look at an ad from like the 1950s. Okay. And then we see like, uh, you know, uh, they're selling a, a car. And the, yeah, and the it's, it's a man in a car. It's a young, hot man in a car and a young, hot girl paying attention to him. And in reality, the only people who can afford that car are old, not hot men. But, but old, ugly men are the ones who buy Jaguars. But if in we, the ad, we, it's a young hot man in a Jaguar. If we look back at those ads, once we have some distance from it, we might learn more about what was true for those people in the 50s that maybe that kind of, you know, desirability through a conspicuous consumption was something to be striven after for, you know, like we should, you sh everyone should try and make money in order to buy this car, in order to seduce. And we can see that what was true about that culture 
by looking at that ad maybe more than we can by looking at a list of facts that they made for us at that time. Um, so it's a different type of truth, obviously. Well, I, okay, but but there are there there's a distinction here which I think is important. One of one thing, I don't know what I want to call it, but maybe a sociological fact. Um, can an ad about a young hot guy in a sports car is does that let us stay know true things about the society that created it? Of course. So no one would deny that. But does it let us know true things about how men and women should relate to each other? No, it tells us deliberately misleading things about how men and women should relate to each other. Um, so in that sense, it's false. Um, and the reason why I kind of want to hold out the possibility of artistic falsehood, and, and I'm giving the example of the car commercial, is that I think if there's, this is my worry, that if there's no artistic falsehood, then the whole game of art becomes very boring. Because you, it's like, it's like I've invented a kind of um, baseball where you don't need to hit the ball to get on base. Like you just need to stand there and you get on base. And I'm like, well, that's a pretty boring game. Nothing matters. So that's my worry is that if we say that every single piece of art and entertainment is true, then we've in a, by that single move made the whole, the whole game of art and entertainment boring. But so, so that's, my worry. that's where you're going to make the distinction in whichever world you choose, whether it's the world of hip hop dance or the world of making ads or the world of writing great, you know, literature in each of these domains, there's going to be the possibility of doing something deep and truthful in the sense that it resonates with the culture and even maybe withstands the test of time. Like there's going to be certain ads that we look at from 50 years ago or 75 years ago that are going to be really revelatory of what it meant to be human at that time. And they hold up in ways that they didn't even intend to maybe what it was, what mattered at that time. And then there's going to be others that just failed. And we can talk about what it is that, you know, makes those successful or, or fail. But I don't think it's how literally true they are. I think there's gonna, there's some other metric that's more poetic, that's more probably less palatable to the Donald Davidsons of the world. Um, you know, there's a distinction between analytic philosophy and continental philosophy, which if our listeners aren't aware of, they could look it up or, um, but you know, Davidson was very analytic and very after this, it seems like it's after this very kind of, I think ultimately narrow view of what it is to be true and false, which I just don't think is as useful in the end as looking at, at a more expansive way. Okay, so once we've expanded it, and once we've said that um, uh, the moon is a tear on the face of the night is true, how do we tell the difference between uh, good versions of it and bad versions of it? Because and 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 I don't want to. I I kind of don't want to make it the critic. what lasts, um, because um, 
bad things can last. Yeah. And good things can die. So that seems to me an, a weirdly uh, triumphalist model of artistic truth. So what should our model of artistic truth be? I think, well, that's the role of the philosopher and the thinker that it is to try and pick out, tease out, or end of the cultural critic. Well, let's do it. Let's do it. Um, I think if it, if it makes you more alive to your life, I think that's good. I'm in favor of that. Yeah. What else? If it helps you integrate um, different sides of yourself, I think that's good. That's truthful. Um, if it helps you see love i think if it helps you love other people meaning to look at them with a um a, a generous attention i wonder what work of art you you experienced that made you privilege love as a great criterion that would be interesting to find out like what did you read or see that made you now in this moment in eric's life say that what makes something good is that it makes you love more i don't think that was like someone just telling you love is good I think probably I, there's a deeper thing that happened there. I, I have to say that um, it's a real, it's a real um, end of the line. It's a real ride or die criterion for me in the sense that I cannot think of a work of art that moved me that didn't cause me to view other people with greater generous attention like like it's almost like by definition and i don't I, I don't think it is by definition so it's a good question but but i cannot think of a counter example i can't think of a work of art that i consider moves me and the way it moves me is by causing me to be less curious about other people and just treat other people with greater contempt uh, like it doesn't it, it i can't think of one but you could imagine living can in you a think of one I can imagine living in like ancient Sparta or something where the great work of art is not what makes you love more, but it's what gives you more courage and valor in battle or something. It's something that we don't think about. That we yeah, don't think about I, guess, great, right? I, I guess I tend to think of courage and, and valor in battle as only of interest to me if it's protecting people who I love. Um, and, and I don't if and if the Spartans didn't think that, then they seem to me to be a very um, sort of a shriveled shriveled uh, fruit on the on the vine of humanity. <laughs> like I don't know what they were about then. Um, like I'd imagine courage is the courage to be there for the people who need you, even in the face of a fear of death. That's that's how I think of courage. I would like to say that what makes a if if what makes a great work of art is what makes you tuned in to your love of other humans, then the role of art in general and entertainment in general is to make it so that love is a is a is a priority. Yeah. And that becomes the criterion on which to base good versus bad art. So yeah. art although I wouldn't bring in stop. humans because because I think if art causes me to love the ocean, that's cool too. And the ocean is not a human. Sure. And that's also something that's changed. Any of you who think that the ocean is human, uh, write into the post on Twitter. Post on Twitter why you think the ocean is a human, because I'd be interested to talk to you. Do you think a tweet can be a great work of art and make you love people more?
or love things or love more? Well, yeah, why not? Because we haven't even talked about, I guess we're wrapping up probably. I can. We are wrapping up. Your eyes. But I'm wondering, like, are some um, media better at being entertainment and art than others? Like, Absolutely that... not. They're all equally good. You're saying that facetiously or you're saying that? A little bit. But I, I do think that, um, like... Uh, like the human soul is able to shine through different colored pieces of glass. So the human soul can shine through um, a building or a tweet or a skit. And is that why you chose entertainment instead of academic philosophy? I wanted to connect with people. I was afraid that I was going to be stuck in a kind of um, a walled garden. And I didn't want to be stuck in a walled garden. I wanted to get out there. And I think I had a judgy narrative, which was like, oh, Eric, you just want to get out there so you can make money. But I don't think that's true. I think I wanted to connect with people on uh, mass because I love people on mass. Like I like the idea of connecting with a lot of people instead of just nine people. So isn't the, the final question for me is, is an episode of Futurama can it cause people to love other love more than a philosophy paper? Well, it depends on the episode and it depends on the philosophy paper is what I'd say, but I'll stand by my episode, Jurassic Bark. And it's not just my episode. I, I collaborated with a bunch of people, but I'll stand by our episode, Jurassic Bark, because the point of that episode is to make you feel love more intensely. And I, and I would say it might be better along that dimension than certain philosophy papers. Um, but, you know, humans have, have, you know, life, life is a little bit of a labyrinth. So the kind of thread that can lead a particular person out of the labyrinth might be different based on the different person. And, and is part of what makes it work so well is it seductiveness? Wouldn't it be better maybe for, if, if people are bored watching the episode and just turn it off, that's not as good as if they're sedu seduced and like- I think we, we I think we need to do an episode either next week or later in the month about seduction. Cause I think that's a huge question. Uh, I was actually reading a tweet by um, Ayella, uh, who you recommended to me. Uh, she's a, um, a writer and a statistician and a sex worker. And she was talking about how she likes seduction because it helps her overcome parts of herself that she wants to overcome. And that the seducer kind of gets in on the side of her greater desires against her, because she grew up as a, as a conservative Christian of some kind. It helps her be more truly herself and overcome her, her conditioning. Um, and I thought that was an interesting view. I, I don't know if I agree with it, but I thought it was an interesting defense of seduction. Great. So the, our next episode maybe can be is, uh, is seduction, uh, an entertaining truth or is seduction good? You know, is, <laughs> is, yeah, is seduction is seduction. Cause I sort of think it's good. It's a necessary evil. It's bad. <laughs> that, I, I would, I would try, I would try sect the, the responses uh, to seduction along that way. Um, anyway, thanks for uh, uh, subbing for Taylor Tao and you're a great co-host. 
And I think this was a cool episode. And I, I, I think so too. I'm, I'm excited to keep going uh, with you on this. I also want to invite uh, our Being in the World listeners to listen to Terrifying Questions and our Terrifying Questions listeners to listen to Being in the World because we're going to cross post these episodes. Yeah, we are. Respective podcasts. I think that each of our listeners will really enjoy the the other. So um, do check out the other if you are seeking more Eric, go to Terrifying Questions podcast. If you're seeking more Tao, go to the um, uh, Being in the World podcast. And we'll be back now on a regular basis here at uh, at both of these podcasts every week. So I really appreciate the opportunity. I do think it's very big shoes to fill. Taylor is uh, also, you know, I made this film Being in the World that Taylor is in. Um, you guys are my elders, my older brothers in a way. Um, all of the Burt's grad students who were uh, there while um, while I was a lowly undergraduate and continue to be my teachers now, now partly through entertainment, like terrifying questions. So thanks, right. thanks for having me on. And thanks for uh, being on. It's a mutually, soon. it's a mutually educative experience. And very okay. entertaining. Okay, everybody. And, and uh, you know, go, go home and, and, and be poetically truthful and, and, and then, uh, report back on how it goes. Mm -hmm.